Now you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 so long. Be in Acts chapter number 2, as you can see on your outline, I'd like to preach a message for you today called A Strong Church. And I tried usually to come up with a more creative title, something that will stick in your mind. You'll have to make do with that very blunt, on-the-nose title this morning. I couldn't think of a better description for this sermon. Acts 2, and as you can see, we'll be in verses 41 to the end of the chapter, verse 47. Acts 2 and verse 41. So if you would, in your Bibles, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 41. The Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. If you would, bow your heads with me. Let's ask God to help us look at this matter of a strong church. Father, thank you for this privilege, this opportunity to meet together to worship. We've just sung about it, and now, Lord, we're reading a passage that deals directly with that. I pray that you might stir in our hearts and what the Holy Spirit began almost 2,000 years ago. Might he continue that good work today, not only in us as a church, but in each individual heart. Speak to us and please use me as your vessel. Might your hand be upon this message. Might it be your words and not mine. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We pick up the story today in verse number 41 on the day of Pentecost the apostle Peter has preached his very first message in the New Testament the Holy Spirit has come down and done an amazing wonder among the people we know that on this day this miracle that happened they were speaking in what the Bible refers to as other tongues there was no gibberish going on that day everybody that was there was able to understand what the apostles, specifically Peter, was saying. And this miracle grabbed their attention. 3,000 souls, as we've seen in verse 41, were saved. This is the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. This is the name of the book that we're reading, right? When people talk about this book of the Bible, they say it's the book of Acts. Yalla say Handelinger. It's the book of Acts. That's, of course, the Bainam, the short version for it. Uh, the full name is the Acts of the Apostles. If you really wanted to name it properly, it would be the book of the Acts of the Apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. <laughs> if you really wanted to give it the full name. And maybe two, two or three centuries ago, that's the kind of titles that people gave to books, right? Very, very long. We just say Acts, <laughs> the book of Acts. 
what we're actually looking at here is what the Holy Spirit did through the apostles, through the believers, to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. The vessel, the channel that the Holy Spirit used was the formation of this church. Now, you and I know that the Holy Spirit has been around since, ever, uh, since there's ever been anything to be around. The Holy Spirit is eternal. He's part of the triune God. We know this. His power and His presence has been manifested in many ways down through history. Biblically speaking, we find Him in the very first page of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible then says, and there was darkness. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and in six days formed everything on the seventh day rested. We see that the Holy Spirit was active in the formation of creation. And interestingly enough, when we get to the beginning of the New Testament, we once again see the Holy Spirit moving upon, not the face of the waters now, but upon these people, upon these believers. And again, He is busy form, forming something that God is very interested in, a special creation of God, which is what we know as the local church. Now, the local church, let's, let's be careful. I, I'm using my words carefully this morning when I say this. The Holy Spirit helped formed it. He helped form it. But I'm not going to say that He started it. I believe the Holy Spirit, he starts the body of Christ in Acts chapter 2. If you really want to understand it properly, the body of Christ was started in Acts 2 because it is the Holy Spirit that baptizes people into the body. We know this, right, from 1 Corinthians 12? And that is a spiritual thing that happens within believers. So follow my words carefully. I'm speaking this morning not about the body of Christ, which is the universal church, a spiritual entity. I'm talking about the local church. The Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts 2, is busy forming it. He is going to empower it and guide it. But let's be careful to notice that Jesus is the one who started it. While Jesus was on the earth, he's the one that called his disciples out from the world and said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And he taught them and he organized them. He gave them structure. He gave them leadership. He even told them what to do after he's gone. So Jesus started the local church. And then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes down to empower it and to guide it. You'll remember that Jesus said shortly before he died that the Spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. He will show you things to come, which is to say after I am gone, after Jesus is physically no longer on the earth, you're not without guidance. Jesus said another, another will come, the comforter will come and he will show you what to do. Just before Jesus left the earth, he said, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You'll be witnesses unto me. And then it leads, right, starts in Jerusalem and goes to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, let's be careful to notice what happens in between Acts chapter 1, that promise of the Spirit coming down, and the gospel reaching the uttermost part of the earth. It's easy to just jump from the beginning to the end and not recognize what's happening in the middle. Everywhere that the Holy Spirit leads these people to go and to take the gospel, the work of the Spirit is not done until there is a local church started in that area. Because it is through, that is the vehicle through which the Spirit of God will continue to reach out to people in that area. 
Those believers that have been touched by the gospel, changed by the power of God, they need to continually grow and get fed. They need each other to make it in the world as followers of Christ. So the work of the Spirit is not only to save the soul, but then also to form a church where those individual souls can be fed and grow and become more and more like Christ. That is what you see throughout the book of Acts, is it not? The gospel reaches an area, and then by the time those apostles leave that area, a church has been started. Let me be careful also to to differentiate two things here. And I fear that this is a massive failure in our day and age. That people fail to distinguish between a socially strong church and a spiritually strong church. Do you understand the difference? You can be popular with the people in an area. That, and that doesn't mean that God is necessarily doing something. It doesn't necessarily mean that He's not. But the local church and the work of the Spirit is not a popularity contest. There's a difference between socially strong and spiritually strong. A.W. Tozer said it so well when he said this. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. He said this plus minus 50 years ago. I think his statement is even more true now. He continued by saying, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, the one we're reading about today, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would have known the difference. You see the difference there. I think this illustrates well the difference between a socially strong church and a spiritually strong church. When it comes to being able to recognize the difference, just look in the text with me. Verse 43, fear came upon every soul. Everyone that was witnessing the work of the Spirit in this local group of, us, of believers, this local assembly, they were taken aback. They were amazed at what was happening. They all recognized the difference of that group compared to the rest of the world. They noticed a difference. In verse 47, you see it a little bit again. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Even at the end there, it goes on to say, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This tells me something. The people noticed Christianity, but in a positive way. You hear about Christianity in the news these days, and it's not always very nice what they have to say. It's often talking about some scandal that some pastor orchestrated or some mission group. It's just awful stuff that you hear about. But when we see what the Holy Spirit did in these early days, the people said, man, this this is different, yes, but in a very good way. And it wasn't simply people joining the church. The Bible says that people were, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So they weren't just joining a church. People were getting saved. And as a result of the internal change, they wanted to be a part of what God was doing in that local church. This is what we want to have as a a spiritually strong church. We don't need an eloquent pastor. Thank God, because I've never considered myself eloquent. 
I cannot wrap my head around the words operflakach. I can't say it right. Chalikach. Too many chas in it. I get my verb tenses wrong. I, I can't always find the proper adjective. I, I, I'm not quite, I, I, I do that. <laughs> That's not, 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 not eloquent, you see. You don't need an eloquent pastor in the pulpit. Was it not in Acts 4 that they said about Peter and John that they are unlearned and ignorant men? They were not eloquent speakers, these apostles. It wasn't about fancy buildings. It wasn't about entertaining musical performances. Necessar it, you can't say that just because you have a building and a nice music program and an eloquent speaker, that doesn't mean the Spirit of God's not involved. But none of those things were present in Acts chapter 2, and yet, and yet, and this is a subjective statement, you, we can argue about when the church has been its strongest. Right? We can argue about you know, the ranking of which church was the best church ever. But you have to admit that what we're reading in Acts 2, this is a spiritually strong church. And I think we would do well to learn a few things from it. Before we get into our outline, let me quickly mention this. We're going to look at the, the group as a whole, the church as a unit. But that church as a unit is made up of individuals. And as you hear this sermon, I would ask you to please consider your own personal heart and say, in what way am I individually contributing to the strength of this church? Am I the weak link? Am I contributing and following along with what God is trying to do? So let's get the first point in the outline. If you want to follow along on your paper, I'll draw your attention to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. You can see there's a blank before the word commitment. So following with my title, Strong Church, we have an S and then a C. So that's why I'm trying to follow that pattern. The first point I'm going to say is a sacred commitment. A sacred commitment. I'll give you a couple other options for the adjective there. A serious commitment. A sincere commitment. Pick whatever word starts with S and put it in there as long as it works for you, right? Verse 41, we'll see a sacred commitment was made. It says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What led to this commitment that they made? It wasn't simply we saw a miracle, that was exciting. Sign us up, we'll join this church. There was more to it. Yes, there was a bona fide miracle. And as I mentioned at the beginning, it wasn't confusion. It wasn't gibberish that no one could understand. The people heard them. You can see it in verse number eight. How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Verse 11, we do hear them speak in our tongues, in our languages, the wonderful works of God. So they were fully aware of, of what was being said. But notice that this is also a fulfillment of about a 750-year-old prophecy. I've given you the verse on your outline there, Isaiah 28, verse 11. God said to the people, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Isaiah prophesied of this day. But if you go back to Isaiah 28 and look in that context, 
with stammering lips. What is that? That's another way to say an uneloquent speaker. There's Peter. There's John. People that are not properly trained in, in they didn't go to preacher's class, right? And get, and get that eloquent touch. Stammering lips and another tongue, andertal, a different language. Everything about that is happening in Acts 2. But in Isaiah 28, the verse before it says this, how do we teach people doctrine? Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. I'm not repeating, by the way, that's what the verse says. What's the point there? The miracle got their attention, but it was the word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept, a little, bit, a little doctrine here, a little doctrine there. And when you pile all that truth up and give it to the people, it presented an overwhelmingly convincing case that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, that he did die, he was buried, and he rose again in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That miracle got their attention. It perked, perked up their ears. It piqued their interest. And then Peter, verse 14, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and he says, and he begins to preach. For the next 22 verses, you'll find half of them, he's quoting Old Testament scripture. It's written in the book of Joel. David said this in the book of Psalms and he goes through verse by verse showing them from the Bible what they needed to hear. And the people putting the miracle together with the word. And we know this from the gospels, the, the signs and wonders that the apostles did. God allowed them to do it to confirm the word that they were preaching. The important part of this equation was the word. Once these Jewish people understood that it was God trying to communicate to them. And, and if you think about it, guys, wouldn't, wouldn't that get your attention if you were convinced today that it wasn't just some American up here going at you for a while? But it was the Spirit of God trying to speak to you individually. You would also maybe sit up a little straighter and open the ears a little wider and say, God, what is it you want me to do? Look at verse 36. Therefore, Peter finishes his message with, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He had just made a very compelling and convincing case for it from the Scripture. He didn't say, believe me because you saw a miracle. He said, believe me because it's written in the Bible. Look at the reaction, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter, to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? When you realize that it is God speaking to you and not just another church service, not just another guy sharing his opinion, but this is what God said. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They were convinced, they were pricked, they were touched in their heart. This is what the Holy Spirit was meant to do. When he comes, he will reprove the world. He will convince them of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. He will show people their need for Christ. Peter tells him in verse 38, you need to repent. You need to get baptized. You'll find remission of sins. You'll receive the Holy Ghost. He explains what they needed to do. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart. They changed their mind about Christ. They showed up to this feast thinking that Jesus, this Jesus guy is just a faker, a deceiver. They left this feast, the 3,000 that we're reading of, 
convinced that this was the one promised in the Old Testament. He is our way of salvation. He is the way to God. And they leave worshiping him as deity. Because of this overwhelmingly convincing argument that Peter gives them, they are willing to stand up and make a very unpopular commitment. It's 3,000 of them getting saved and baptized, right? We, we read that and think, man, that's a lot. Not when you consider how many Jews were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They are still a, an, a very small minority in that town. This was not a popular thing to do. But they still were so convinced that they weren't afraid to take a stand for Christ. And getting baptized... Is what it is one of the ways, and I say one of the chief ways because Jesus commanded it to be done, that you can show your allegiance to him to get into the water and say, I am together with the idea of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's why we put you in the water, put you under the water, and if you're nice, we bring you back up out of the water. <laughs> That's the point of it, to show your connection to Christ, to say, I'm taking a stand. I'm not ashamed of him. He wasn't ashamed of me when he hung there for six hours dying for my sins. So even though it's not popular, I will take a stand for Christ. People need to know where you stand. You cannot go through life just trying to appease popular public opinion. What is right according to what God said? Let me stand for that. Why should you make a public profession of your faith? Let me give you two quick reasons. Number one, it indicates how serious you are. And along the same lines, it also invites others to take that commitment seriously. They look at you and say, if you're willing to stand for this, specifically for this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it's not popular, even though you're going to be persecuted, even though you might lose everything, including your life, this must be something real. And it invites them to investigate further what's so special about this man, Jesus, that you're willing to go so far and do so much for him. There needs to be a sacred, serious, sincere commitment. Let me just ask you before we move to the next point, have you made that commitment? Has the Holy Spirit touched your heart and shown you your need for Christ? Have you personally decided to receive Him as your Savior? If you have been genuinely saved, have you entered the water as Christ commanded and shown publicly that you're not ashamed? That you are part of His death, burial, and resurrection and have every intention of following along as one of his disciples. Have you made that commitment? Does anybody else in your life know that you stand for Christ? The second part I'd like to emphasize from our passage, point number two on your outline, a supportive community. A supportive community. So I believe this church was a strong church because it was made up of people who had made a sacred commitment. A commitment to God. That's one thing that made it strong. But number two, this church was a strong church because they acted as a support unit for each other. They were a supportive 
community. You'll see it with me in verse 42. Let me just emphasize some of the language here. Verse 42, and they continued. Notice the pronoun, they continued. It wasn't he continued and she continued and that other guy continued. They continued. It speaks as a unit in verse number 40, 44, if you would just skip down to that. Verse 44, and all were together. Do you see that? All that believed were together. They're working as a unit Verse 44 again at the end, and had all things common together. In verse number 46, it says, and they continuing daily with one accord. Do you see the unity that they had? This group, there, there's an undeniable togetherness about this early church. And this is, as, as I've mentioned already, this is a time when Christianity is just in, in its infantile stage, it's just getting started. It is not popular. It's not socially acceptable. It's not part of their culture. These disciples needed each other. They were the only like-minded fellowship that they had. And, and we, it's tempting to say 2,000, laters, 2000 years later, we don't have that issue because you know, we have a bit of a Christian culture and we're used to it. Can I just say, I think we still need each other just as much. If you are going to try to live a biblical, godly life, you need the supportiveness of a local church. Now, if you're just looking for the socially strong thing, that's a different. If you want the social club aspect, you can find that in many places. Churches, at the golf, daughter by the golf bond. You can join a tennis club. You can, there's all sorts of ways to find social acceptance, but to find spiritual strength and supportiveness that a Christian would need, you'll find that in a local church. The, the, the togetherness, the unity that they experienced, it was not because they shared a similar culture. And I think in South Africa, this needs to be emphasized. If I was preaching this in America, it would still be true, but maybe not as immediately needed. But here especially, I think this needs to be pointed out. Look at who was present on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 9. Parthenians, or Parthians rather, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, the dwellers in Mesopotamia, in Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. That's a lot of different people. That's a lot of different languages. That's a lot of culture. They outdid you. You have 11 official languages. There are over 15 represented in that list. I've, counted, I've done the research behind it. You can find 15 different official languages from those areas. So this was a great miracle that happened that day. These are the ones that initially believed and were together. Now granted, some of these Jews that had traveled from these foreign countries after the day of Pentecost went back home. And you know what they did when they went back to their homeland? They told people what happened in Jerusalem. And they said, we heard about this one Jesus. We thought he was a faker. Turns out he was directly from the Father. This is the Savior of the world. He was the promised one. And they began to share the gospel. You know what began to happen in these other places? Local churches started to pop up. 
before they left town and even after they left town, this culturally diverse assembly of people, after a few of them leave, they continue on with their togetherness. They were able to get along despite the language differences, despite the cultural differences, despite difference in skin color because there obviously one, there was one. They had one common thread. They were all madly in love and head over heels about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the bond of their togetherness. And because of that, the rest of the world saw them as a very strange thing and therefore they needed each other in a big way. Let me show you how this support was manifested. Verse 44. I think sometimes we read these verses and get a little scared. <laughs> Verse 44 can be scary. All that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Oh, pastor, just read the next verse. <laughs> Are you going to suggest that we do the same thing. I'm wanting to show you the supportive nature of this strong church. Now, I'm going to show you a couple other verses, so just hold on to your seats. Gets worse. <laughs> I want you to see here, though. They sold their possessions, verse 45, and parted them to all men as every man had need. It was the individual, uh, let's say each individual at his own discretion sold something and then used that money or those resources and gave it as that person saw fit. See, this wasn't a government program. It wasn't a rule of the church. You have to sell everything and give it to the... It was as each individual saw fit. They could sell it and they could give it. Look at chapter four, if you would, please. Let me show you another aspect of this early church. Same church... Same church, some people took it upon themselves to sell their goods and use those to help people in need. Uh, look with me at verse number 34. Chapter 4, verse 34. Neither was there among them, uh, I'm sorry, neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them. You see how it gets worse? It's not just selling your possessions. Lands and houses this is massive. I, I don't want to make you feel anxious or panicked, but just let your mind wander for a minute. Would you ever actually consider doing that? They did. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, verse 35, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and, dis and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. So what's happening here? In chapter 2, the individual could take it upon himself. I'll sell something I have, use the money to help somebody in need. Individual decision. By chapter 4, there, there were so many needs. People were selling massive things, lands, houses. And they would come to the leadership of the church and say, we're not sure exactly who needs this. We're going to trust you guys to distribute it properly. So here you go. You, you use it as God sees fit. You know how the book of Acts works. The apostles were not in it for the money. They didn't take the lands and houses and, or the money from it and try to get rich themselves. They took care of people. But this was the church being organized. 
if I can use a bit of a slang term, to eliminate mooching. Because you get moochers. Do we know that word here? Moochers. Some of you, you look confused. Mooching. Uh, people that just show up to church because they want a handout. They're not interested in the word of God or Christ. They endure the church service because they have every plan at the end of the service to approach somebody and ask for a handout because they're too lazy to work. Is that clear enough? <laughs> That's mooching. This organized effort was made to eliminate moochers. The apostles could verify if people actually had needs and if maybe they would know this guy is just lazy. That's why he's poor. He doesn't want to work and he's living off of others. We're not going to help that. We're not going to affirm that behavior. So there was an organized effort to be supportive. Let me show you one other aspect of this in verse number 32. Verse number 32. Same chapter. Four, chapter 4 verse 32 and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own but they had all things common watch this one in verse 32 the people still possessed their things do you see that they still had technical ownership of it it was theirs but what did they say about it? Their attitude was, yes, we own it. It is mine. I haven't sold it. My name is on the title deed, but I recognize it as God's resource. God gave it to me, and God is welcome to use it to take care of whatever need is presenting itself. So it's God's resources for God's people. It was their attitude about their possessions. The possessions did not possess them. So they said, even though we still retain ownership, we are happy to use these things for God's people and God's glory. So do you see there's different options? In none of these options do you read communism. No, no, church, leader is, no church leader should show up at your house. Hey, varistitinda. Uh, that didn't happen in the book of Acts. It didn't happen in the New Testament. People, they wanted to support one another as they were moved by the Holy Spirit to do it. They had sensed the great care and love that God had expressed to them and they wanted to express it to each other. This was one of the outward workings of that, of that love that they had felt. If I can just say, and I, as a proud papa, you know, I, when, when you have children that you're proud of, you can't help but say it sometimes. And as a pastor, I also have the same feeling when I see it happening in our church over and over again. I, I hesitate. I will not put names to this because I, I don't say this to embarrass anybody. But wow, I have seen you folks fulfill what we've just looked at over and over again. Somebody needs a ride to church. You know what you say? Well, it's my car. I own it. I put the petrol in it. But if God wants to use it to get people to and from church, God's car. I'll run, over, I'll run all over town and pick people up and take them home afterwards. It's God's car. Fed people say, listen, we own a guest house. If you ever have people coming through town, you need to put them up, just let us know. Wow. And, and, and free? Wow. That's God's guest house. We've had people say, preacher, we have a farm. Now, 
that man's name is still on the title of the farm. He didn't sell the farm, but he said any time the church wants to use the farm, it's God's farm. Are we not fulfilling the, the spirit of what we're reading? I mean, literally, are we not doing what is, what is written right here? We've had people say, Pastor, I, I don't have a lot of resources, but I know how to, I'm, I'm a plumber. I know how to plumb. Is that the right verb? Man, I can plumb as, as, as long as the day is. I can, I can plumb. So if you got any plumbing needs, let me know. I'm an electrician. If you need any work with that, let me know. I can do the sounds. Let me know. And people, they might still own the stuff, but wow, they don't treat it as if this is my stuff, not yours. Stay away. They look at what they have and say, how can I support the people around me? I believe the Holy Spirit of God moving in this early church this was one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit working in them is to say, how can we take care of each other? Just recently, and we try to do this anytime somebody has had a unique circumstance happen in their life, whether somebody's passed away or maybe a, a new baby's been born, something different in their home, and it's a bit difficult for them to keep up with their daily chores. So we try to bring them meals. And I heard a story recently where we brought somebody a meal. And since we've had so many new babies in, you know, spring up this year, you have no idea who I'm talking about. So it's very ambiguous. But somebody pitched up at the house where the new baby was, brought this family a meal. And that, that family, they had family from out of town visiting. So they're not an active part of the church here. They know about us, but they're, they're, they don't live here. And when they saw that, and that person explained, no, no, the church has been bringing us so much food that they had to freeze it to save it for later. That, that out-of-towner said, this, this is what a church ought to be. They noticed a difference. It had nothing to do with popular opinion or socially acceptable. Wow, you're doing this. People taking their time to deliver the food just because we love that family. Strong church. Let me just quickly mention a few other things you see in the New Testament. I won't take long on this because it's more than just your physical resources, right? Money, food, clothing, all of that stuff. Please continue to work with that. But in the New Testament, you see many times Paul saying that he was encouraged by the coming of a brother. Titus, Timothy, Silas said, you know, I, Paul went through some tough times and somebody would show up just to be there with him. And that helped him exhortation see this is part of the support we need from each other what is exhortation we need to be stirred up we need to be provoked to love and to good works that's the biblical phrase for it we get that from each other godly advice and counsel don't we always need that at some point in the multitude of counselors their safety look around you got a pretty good multitude sitting in the room today friendship Friendship. I believe when you read in the New Testament, Paul says, such and such a man, he is a beloved brother in Christ. I think that beloved part speaks to the friendship that Paul experienced within those various churches. We get accountability from each other. Amen. We get accountability. You see this with Paul standing up to Peter and rebuking him and saying, Peter, what you just did, that's not in line with the gospel. And he's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it to help Peter stay in line with the truth. We get that from a supporting community. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, 
Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. Do you see that? Another thing we find is comfort. We get that from a supportive community. Sometimes, folks, you don't need somebody to preach at you. You need somebody to have a shoulder that has a nice dry spot where you can cry on it. Amen. I've, I've, I've seen this in my own life. People come to me, the pastor, you know, I need counseling. I need help. I need, you know, what, you know what some people need? Sometimes they do need me to say something, but often what they need is somebody to just listen. To just say, I, I care about you. Just pour out your heart. I'm here for you. Where did we learn this? Jesus would show up in a place. Would he not heal their sicknesses? Yes. Would he not feed the hungry? Sure. Multiply the bread and fishes. He took care of physical needs, but Jesus was also careful to say, listen, I'll wash your feet, but I'm here to do much more than just clean your feet. I'm here to do much more than just feed you. Labor not for the meat that perishes, but labor for that eternal that eternal life that, that will never fade away. Labor towards that. Seek for that spiritual connection. Jesus came to help people get closer to each other and get closer to God. So before he left this earth on your paper, I've given you the verse, John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. He went on to say, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. All men see the difference. Why? Because, wow, these Christians support each other. They really genuinely care about bearing each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So as a church, we, I, I believe, we, we, don't, we don't want to, to make ourselves doormats we don't want to allow people to abuse our kindness. But we do want to keep our hearts soft enough and open enough to say, if you're in need, please let us know. We would like to help as much as we can. Whatever the need is, we'll see what we can do. Now ask yourself personally, would you fit well in this church in Acts 2, in Acts 4? Would you fall in line with this, with the way you live your life, the, the attitude you have towards your possessions, towards others? Are you looking for an opportunity to be a help and a blessing to them? The last thing on the outline, number three, and you can come back to Acts 2 now. This was a strong church because they made a sacred commitment to Christ for a strong church because they acted as a supportive community. And then thirdly, it was a strong church because they had a steadfast continuance. A steadfast continuance. In Acts 2, verse 42, let me point it out to you. It's, I, I, I didn't have to get very creative. It's right there in the verse. And they continued steadfastly. A steadfast continuance. Let me dig in just a little bit with those two words. Number one, continue. What does that mean? I found this interesting. Maybe you won't find it as interesting, but one of those small little ironies in the Bible. What does it mean to continue? Have you ever been talking to somebody and they get to the middle of the sentence and that's it? <laughs> You're like, what do you want to say? 
Whenever they get to the middle of their thought and all of a sudden it's just, what do you want to say? Go on. <laughs> right? Continue. Please finish the story, especially those of you that have OCD. <laughs> Please get to the full stop. Don't leave me hanging. <laughs> You're going to ruin my day if you don't finish the sentence. What does it mean to continue? Go on. Right? That's a simple way. The, the dictionary offers a much broader, much more detailed to maintain without interruption. I can make it simple. Go on. Go on. That's continue. What does steadfastly, the word steadfast, what does that mean? So you understand continue is the verb. Steadfastly is the adverb. It describes the continuing. How do we continue? We continue steadfastly. What does steadfast mean? Firmly fixed in place, determined, immovable. Do, do you see the irony? Go on. Don't move. <laughs> Go on, but I'm fixed in place. So how am I going to make progress if I can't go anywhere? I'm immovably moving. <laughs> it's a very unique irony, I think. Let me try to spell this out properly. They were doing something. This church, they were doing many things, and we're about to look at each thing individually. They were doing something, but not out of mere obligation, but out of determination. Do you understand the difference? They're not just going through the motions because everybody else in the church was doing it. They all understood why they were doing it, and with all their heart, they did that thing, whatever it was. They did it because they were determined, they were convinced this is the right thing to do. As we've seen many times, they were of one heart, of one soul, of one mind. So determination, not obligation. And because of this, they were fixed in place, immovable, and yet consistently made outward and upward progress. Outward, what do I mean? The gospel continued to go out. Other people continued to see the difference. And lives continued to be changed. That's the horizontal aspect. And then vertically, there was an upward progress because they continued to become more and more like Christ. It's not enough to simply continue. You need to steadfastly continue. Because if you just keep doing it over and over again, it becomes repetitive, habitual, boring. Oh, I just feel like I have to do it. You're going through the motions and you will quit. But if you do it steadfastly, you have a goal. You know why you're doing it. You're determined. I'm fixed on this point and that's why I'll do it. Let's look quickly at what they continued in. You can see in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in so here's, here's what they were busy with. Several things. Number one, the apostles' doctrine. What is this? Jesus, right before he left, he told them, go into all nations, teach them, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. What were the apostles teaching? Precisely that. Let me tell you what Jesus said. Let me give you the words of Christ. This is how a disciple lives. And then they simply repeated the teachings of Christ. That was the apostles' doctrine. Now, as time went on, the Holy Spirit, 
continued to reveal other things. We know that the Apostle Paul received what we now know as the mysteries of the faith. And, and thank God we have access to all of these apostolic teachings because we hold a Bible in our hands that God not only at that time 2,000 years ago divinely oversaw the production of it, right? He inspired it, but then he also preserved it to this day. So we can still go through the apostolic teachings. We have their doctrine. And by the grace of God, we follow that doctrine. They continued in that. What else? Verse 42, the apostles' doctrine. Notice there's not a comma after that. The apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They had apostolic fellowship what does this mean fellowship is participation it's participation so they didn't just sit and listen to what the preacher had to say we heard the sermon we go home let's get on with the week tick that box we're done you know what they they got involved in it they said okay here's what he said and then one with another they begin to talk about what was taught and hey how do you think that this will fit in my life and you know he said this and this is going to have to change do you have any advice on how I can do this and they participated in each other's lives do you know how Jesus taught the apostles he said guys come here follow me be with me let's spend time together that was part of the discipleship Jesus didn't invite the 12 to sit in a classroom for three and a half years and say just listen take notes he said, let's spend time together. That's the fellowship. We also see in verse 42, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread. Now, sometimes this term can be used to refer to the Lord's Supper, the Nachmal, but not always. It's a mistake to say breaking bread is always the Lord's Supper when you're reading the Bible because it's not always that. It can be. What I will say is that at the least it's this. It is a less formal source of fellowship. Apostles' doctrine, apostles' fellowship, that's a more formal thing when we're sitting down to discuss these serious things that have been taught. We need to bounce these doctrinal ideas back and forth. That's good. That's necessary. But we also need time to sit around and talk about rugby. We need to hash out who's going to win. Some of you are going, no, you don't. <laughs> I don't know if we ever need to sit down and talk about cricket. <laughs> you can if you want. <laughs> Bre breaking of bread just offers a less formal atmosphere where we can get to know each other, get to be around each other. The verse also says, and in prayers. They continued steadfastly praying together I cannot emphasize how precious that time is to hear one another in a conversation with the Lord I don't think there's anything more intimate that we can share together as believers than that even more so than a church service where one man stands up opens the word and preaches I think that is a, a very a divine experience it should be but entering into the prayer closet, approaching the throne of grace together, hearing an older Christian, a more mature Christian speak with the Lord, there is something so edifying about that. And this early church continued steadfastly doing that. 
You see a bit of this again repeated in verse 46, just to make you familiar with the passage. Verse 46, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Now we know from chapter 3 that they would go to the temple to pray together. But we also know from chapter 3 and in chapter 4, a little bit in chapter 5, they would go to the temple also to preach. There were times when the Lord would say, go, go into that porch in that temple area and preach to the people. So there's a good chance, yes, they prayed together there, but that also the apostles, this is where they would gather for a, a bit more of a formal teaching session. Can you do that house to house? Yes. But they did have formal, what we would know as church gatherings. I think that's what this is referring to. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. I think this lends itself directly to what we in our modern day would call the cell group idea. But much less, it's not the formal thing where we go to the temple and one man does the teaching. It's not formal like that. You're just getting together to have good Christian fellowship. There's one thing I think we have to acknowledge about this though. Because without this last part, I think all of the other things I've mentioned kind of falls by the wayside. Look with me in verse 46 at the end of it. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness. Do you see that? They did it with gladness. They continued steadfastly doing these things, but they did it with the right attitude. They did it because they wanted to do it. And if you want to just sprinkle a little salt on this, get verse 47, praising God. Do you see that's a continuation? There's no full stop at the end of verse 46. Verse 47, they're praising God. How wonderful to get together as a group, whether we're formally meeting as a church like this kind of a service or house to house in a small group meeting, but to hear one another talk about what God is doing in your life. God answered this prayer. He met this need. He opened that door. He took care of me. I love the Lord. To hear people sharing those stories, there's something so necessary about that. I promise you this. You try to push on to live a godly biblical life. What did Paul promise? All those that will live godly shall suffer persecution. The world, the flesh, and the devil, when they see a Christian making an attempt to do it right, those enemies of Christianity will try to make discipleship tiresome, frustrating, and even more costly than it is. It will become difficult to stick with it, to continue doing it. It'll be tough. It'll be tough. A.W. Tozer said this, go to church once a week, nobody pays attention. Worship God seven days a week, you become strange. What does it say in verse 46? How often did they worship God together? Daily. Did, did they go to a formal church service every day? No, but it was a continual part of their life that we are not just going to get together, go through the motions, but they did it gladly. They got together and praised God together. That is worshiping the Lord. They didn't need a band to do that. They needed genuine, sincere thankfulness for what God was doing in their hearts. 
They recognize the work of God not only in them as an individual, in each person, but they could see it in other people's lives and it excited this church. They said, we want to hear your story. We want to hear what God's doing with you. And the world thinks we're strange for doing this. When the world calls it strange, often that is what God would call strong. Go to church once a week, nobody pays attention. Worship God seven days a week and you become strange. If you're going to be a strong church, you're going to have to find continual encouragement. The Holy Spirit, how does He do this? Can He give it to you individually? Sure. You can fellowship with Him individually. You should. But one of the methods that the Holy Spirit uses to strengthen you as an individual is to keep you involved in a strong local church. This is one of the ways the Holy Spirit keeps you as an individual strong. I'll finish just with this quote at the end, at the bottom of your paper. I found this very fitting for this sermon. A.W. Tozer said this as well. Forgive me, I know all of my quotes came from him, but he had a lot of good things to say on this subject today. The church can have light only as it is full of the Spirit. And it can be full only as the members that compose it are filled individually. Does that make sense? As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, yes, we're talking about a strong church and the attributes of it, how the Holy Spirit worked in that early church. But what we're looking at as a unit needs to be true of you as an individual as well. You need to examine your own heart and say, am I contributing to this church being strong? Am I helping or am I hurting it? If we are going to continue steadfastly down this proper path, we need each other. It starts, I believe, with a strong commitment. It continues through the support of a community and each individual genuinely determined in their heart. I'm going to keep moving on by not moving from this position. I'm so glad God is working in my life. I don't want that to stop. I want to see what he does next. I'm excited for what God might do next and share that with one another. Let's all stand if you would please. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Some music will play softly. Can I ask you please to examine your heart? I've preached about a strong church. The temptation might be to examine the church. Let me think about the church. Let me take a look at uh, what other people are doing. Are they pulling their weight? Instead, I'm asking you to take a look in your own heart and ask yourself the work that the Spirit started 2,000 years ago in that church. Can I see that work in my life now? The outworking of the Holy Spirit, do you see it? Is it evident? 
if we picked you up, put you in the time machine, zipped you back to the book of Acts, would you fit in? You say, I speak a different language. I got a different culture. It didn't matter to them, did it? They found their togetherness in the Lord Jesus Christ. They found the motivation to continue in how good God had been to them. They shared their lives with each other. By God's grace, we want to do the same thing in our church. Perhaps you've come this morning as they did on that Feast of Pentecost, not knowing the truth about Jesus Christ. They had heard of Him, but they didn't know precisely how important that man was. They did not realize that He was the Savior, the Son of God. I found it to be true in our day and age. Many people, they know the term Jesus is the Savior. They know that, but they don't know Jesus is my Savior. It hasn't become personal to them. And if that's you this morning, if the Holy Spirit has perhaps touched your heart, could I leave this invitation by saying, please, take a moment, find me afterwards. We'll chat privately. This is not to make things awkward or embarrassing. We'll chat privately. I would be honored to help you personally know the Lord as your Savior. Father, thank you for your help this morning, for speaking to our hearts. I believe that both as a church and as individuals, we can so benefit from the example left behind in the book of Acts of this early church. Lord, what you did 2,000 years ago in that church, please continue that work in our church today. Father, I'm convinced that for that to happen, each individual, each individual has to strive and press towards that mark. Continue to work in us, God, and we'll be careful to thank you for it. Please, Lord, have your hand up on the baptism and the rest of the proceedings today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.